Hello, welcome along to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am Joe Robinson. At the other end of a mic, somewhere else in the world is James Spender. Hello, Joseph. I am. I'm not somewhere else in the world. I'm in London. I'm in London, the heart of England, as they say. There is only one place in England that is London. And enough of that waffle. Let's introduce today's guest. She is a history maker. She is the first woman to become a sport director of a men's world tour team, that team being Israel Startup Nation, is Miss Sherry Pridham. But before we get into that interview, James and I are going to run you through some of the things that we've been liking and disliking in the world of cycling over the last fortnight. James, how are you? Uh, what's getting you going and not getting you going? I'm going to take a guess that it's getting caught in the rain as we got we came onto this call a bit late today because you got caught in a downpour. I did, yeah. It's that time of year where uh, apparently it rains all the time. I mean, I don't want to sort of be that person that bangs on about, oh, isn't the weather rubbish? But isn't the weather rubbish? It really is. It's just so it's, it's rubbish. It's, it's also that time of year where it's, it's still quite hot and muggy, but you can't keep the windows open because a crane flies. Because a crane flies in. Yes, <laughs> an actual crane flies in. Yeah, no, crane flies. Is it crane flies? What did you did you used to um, call crane flies something different when you were younger? So my my other half calls them daddy long legs. Daddy long legs. But I believe that daddy long legs are just uh, spiders that can't fly, whereas these can fly. Whoa, that is, I didn't even consider that. But no, daddy long legs. And I've got another one for you: woodlouse or woodlice. Alternative name for woodlice? Do you have one? Uh, well, when I was at school, some were partial to calling them cheesy bugs. Yes, <laughs> yes, they were. Yes, they were. Thank you. I was having, I was having this, I was having this argument um, the other day, and apparently it's like no, never heard of cheesy bugs. Never heard of cheesy bugs. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, I, I've heard them called cheesy bugs as well as woodlice, woodlow. Woodlow. Um, <laughs> yeah, woodlow. The plural. Um, I, I personally yeah. call them woodlice, uh, but I, I, I'll accept cheesy bugs in common parlance. Yeah, no, exactly, because they're kind of like sort of like armored shell baby bells. Yeah, yeah, why not? Or like um, brie in that little wooden strip that keeps it from, no, not brie, camembert, in that wo- little wooden strip that keeps it from getting squashed. Yeah. How do you, uh, how do you tempt a bear out of hide nation? You say camembert. Camembert. Come on, bear. Um, um, yeah, so yeah, weather, weather, wood, lice, daddy long legs, can't open the windows, crane flies in, all that stuff. It's getting me down, man. I've got to say, it's getting me down. Yeah, this I, I don't mind the rain, but I only like the rain when it's cold. I know that sounds silly. You're probably thinking, shut up, Joe, you idiot. Mm. But I feel like in this like muggy climate, when it's just wet and horrible outside, it's just it's just so sticky and close. That's a word. That, your mum and dad would use. Oh, it's close, Ooh, isn't it? Yeah, it's close. It's close. That goes. That falls under the same into the same column as like. Oh, he's a bit poorly. He's a bit poorly. It's like no, I'm ill. I'm ill. Oh, he's but he's under the weather. Oh, 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 bless Joe. Oh, Joe's under the weather. Why is that? Because oh, the weather's a bit close. It's a bit close for him, isn't it? Does that imply that when you're all right, you're over the weather? Yeah, you're over the weather. You're literally yeah, you're literally just like you're over. You're on top of the weather. As they say, you're on top of the world. If you're all right, you're on top of the world. If you're not, then you're under the weather, which I kind of guess makes sense because it's a bit like being above and below the clouds. But anyway, in uh, you know, in Brighton news, in Brighton news, I do have a really good bike at the moment, which is probably something that I am loving. It's Pinarette. I mean, pff, I kind of almost hate myself for saying it. Um, 
It's a Fancy Pants bike. It's Pinarello Dogma, um, the latest Dogma F. It's the one that Ineos ride. It's the one that I sort of want to hate. It's the one that has been getting progressively better every single generation of it. And, you know, read all about it. It'll be in the pages of Cyclist Magazine, my full review. But um, long story short, if you're Ineos and you sharpen the start line with that thing, or you get given it in January, as they would have done this last season, then you're just like... I'm going to feel good. I feel powerful. It is just such a sick bike. So this has empowered me. So that's I've been feeling great about that. Uh, and I've also been feeling really great about napping. Started doing that quite a lot recently. One of the joys of working from home, WFHing. Um, and it's all about it's all about the power nap, um, which I sort of realized the other day. I spoke a long time ago, did a thing on sleep, spoke to the guy that invented power naps. Didn't invent sleep but invented Sir John Powernap. Yeah, invented Powernaps in 1816. Now, he's called Dr. James Mars, uh, and he's uh, he's an American fella, and he realised, realised, don't know, probably was just trying to justify it to the wife, that he needed 20 minutes during the day. So that's the important thing, isn't it? Never more than 20 minutes, right? Never more than 20 minutes, because you start going into deeper sleep, and you are like more mentally discombobulated coming back out of that sleep. It's more jarring for your brain which leaves you feeling just basically more tired almost than when you went to sleep and had that nap. 20 minutes is the optimum time. So this reminds me of something, it's not cycling related, uh, that I read the other day, which is about someone you'll be interested in as you're a Man United fan, Cristiano Ronaldo. So he sleeps in a series of 90-minute power naps, well, naps during the night, as opposed to sleeping the entire way through the night. So he will just do a series of 90-minute sort of cycles cycles of sleep. But every time he gets up, he has his sheets changed. <laughs> He'll sleep in fresh sheets every time. By, by who? By, like, deputy manager Mike Phelan. Like he's yeah, coming in, someone's he's coming doing in it, aren't they? I, I'll imagine it'll be like, I don't know, Antonio Martial or yeah. uh, one of the other players who are like, Oh, you, you've got yeah. to live with Cristiano, and you've got to change his sheets. <laughs> That's unbelievable. That reminds, that makes me think of like um, how like I'd love to see a, a dressing room these days at half time because you know like a player goes in and now Ronnie's back in the prem. A player goes in at half time, they come back out and they look just as good as when they started the game. I could well imagine there are stylists in dressing rooms now. Yeah. Well, this reminds actually another one, another Man United player. Sorry, this is a, a tangent about football. But Jaden Sancho, yeah, when he played at Borussia Dortmund, would have his hairdresser, well, his barber from South London, I believe, flown over to Dortmund once. I think it was once a week to give him a haircut. Wow! So he only trusted his barber, so he'd fly him out, have his hair done, fly him home. That's that. I mean, that reminds me of another tangent, Joe, of the wives of the European rubber barons in the Amazon rainforest in the middle of the 19th century. who were incredibly, incredibly wealthy people. And they were so wealthy that they would send their clothes back to Paris by boat down the Amazon River to get washed. And then they come back via boat down the Amazon River back to the women. Because the women were just like, nah, nah the Amazon's dirty, mate. You've seen it. Brown. We're not washing our clothes in that. Interesting. So they used the Seine instead, which ironically 
was definitely a dirtier river during that. I think that fundamentally, <laughs> a fundamentally dirty river. I'm going to correct myself there. I reckon it's probably in the 18th century. Anyway, the date's not important. It's the fact that people are just absolutely crazy. So, yeah, those two things, power napping. Um, top tip for your power naps, ladies and gents, is you have an espresso, counterintuitive as it sounds, you have an espresso before your power nap, you, you neck it, then you go, go to sleep, set your alarm, obviously 20 minutes. And 20 minutes, by the way, isn't like 20 minutes of that's the actual sleep time. It's just like, just shut your eyes and put an alarm on for 20 minutes and do it that way. When you wake up, your metabolism will have metabolized the espresso. You'll be doubly awake, good to go. It's a great thing to do. You shouldn't nap past four in the afternoon is my other top tip. Missed out on my nap today then. Oh, I know, yeah. Tell me about it, mate. And if you really want to kind of get into a creative headspace, nap in an armchair, sat upright, holding your keys in one hand with a biscuit tin lid underneath the keys. So as you go, as you fall asleep, your hands will relax and you'll drop your keys on your biscuit tin lid, starting you awake like that, which puts you in this kind of semi-lucid state. You do that a couple of times, puts you in a semi-lucid state. Salvador Dali, mate. That's how he used to paint. And what they say is also just pop a scotch egg in your other pocket. Do they? What pocket meats? Yeah, pocket meats. Bob Morton with pocket meats. Um, well, thanks for that advice. That's all right. I, sh- I shall be taking it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Great. Around 11, I'll let you know how it goes. I haven't got a biscuit tin lid. 11's too early, sorry. You want to be napping between midday four. All right, I'll, midday and four. I'll have yeah. a nap. After yeah. me lunch. Yeah. And I'll do that and I'll see how it happens. How about how about, how about about you, mate? What's been uh, getting you up and getting you down? A uh, good thing for me is that I'm going to see your Pinarello dogma and uh, attempt to raise you with a specialised S-Works Tarmac SL7 with Shram Red ETAP. Uh, an integrated quark power meter and a set of Favreau Asimo power meter pedals that I've got at the moment. I've got <laughs> I am that much of a fancy dancy. I've got two sets of, I've got two power meters on the bike I'm riding at the moment and I hate myself for it. I hate you for that as well. I you can't see this. You can't see this but I'm leaning in in an adversarial manner into my microphone. So no, so I'm off to Flanders next week for the World Championship. Flanders. Flanders, to Leuven, the home of Stella Artois. So I'll be bringing back a few crates. Um, and I'm doing a few bits and bobs out there, including a bit of riding for some YouTube for some YouTube videos. And I'm that's the bike I'm taking. And can that thing move? My, oh my. It is a, it's a very good bike. It's a very good bike. Uh, the SL... The SL6, its predecessor, the SL6 disc, was there amongst the best right bikes I've ever ridden. In terms of straight performance, it was the best bike I'd ever ridden. I've not ridden the SL7 as much yet, but it's certainly matching the SL6 in terms of its ability to climb, being fast, handling. It's also green. But I've got two power meters on it at the moment, so I kind of hate myself for that. Yeah, also you're costing yourself weight, not necessarily. You just get rid of those Asionas. I, I don't think the fact that I've got a power meter, two power meters is really the difference in terms of the weight. <laughs> every little counts, mate. The fact that the fact that the fact that I'm gonna eat uh Pizza Hut every day next week because Remco Ivanapol's got a pizza named after him in Belgium Pizza Hut. <laughs> there you go. Probably have more of an effect on my riding. Fantastic. Than two power meters. Um Something I don't like. I was going to say. I was actually going to say 
uh, crane flies slash daddy long legs because I do like to have the windows and doors open in my flat uh, and I can't at the moment because they come in. Uh, but the thing that I'm actually hating, and I, we spoke about this before I came on, James, was that this morning uh, the bin lorry crashed into my flat. <laughs> I just set a flat, and that's what I'm not liking because um, I was sitting here trying to do a bit of work, having a coffee. Next thing I know, bang, look out the window. Uh, a load of uh, sort of the wall. We have a little archway that you drive under to go park. The bin man has tried to reverse as close as he could to it to then collect the bins. Completely misjudged it and just crashed into the wall uh, and caused not only superficial but structural damage to the building. Structural damage? It's going to take remedial work. It will take remedial work. And because it was the council at fault, I'm pretty sure that they're going to get into a long standing dispute with the management company that run L Flats over who should repair and pay for it which means the work I can already see will not be done for a very long time. And the best thing about it is this not, we've only been living here a year and this has already happened twice. Really? That is kind of incredible. Yeah. You'd think they'd put up a bigger sign. The sign was quite big, but I mean, okay, I look, 7X Council ain't listening to this. It was the bin, it was the bin team's fault, all right? Oh, so, Joe. <laughs> Come on, come on. My neighbour, Tim, saw the entire incident, okay? Tim Tim the bin, that's what they call him, isn't it? Tim the bin saw the entire incident and he told me it's their fault. And he said, Joe, he said, I saw the entire incident. I saw them wantonly reverse. I saw them get out and read the sign out loud that said no more than 3.8 metres. And they got back in and they reversed. And they were laughing. Did you know they were laughing, Joe? (laughs) I'm tuning the bin. So that's what I don't like. Yeah. That's um, terrible. Yeah. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? Well, on that note, what can you do? You can listen to a fantastic interview with none other than Israel Startup Nation's Sherry Pridham, um, who also just want to shout out to the fact that we also do have a magazine, Cyclist Magazine. She also writes a column. It's really good. Um, and I'm not sure if we said this to her at the time. Thank you, Sherry, for writing it. It's really, I love, yeah, love reading her words every month. Um, so, she, yeah, she gives us a little snapshot from inside the peloton. And now she's going to give us a snapshot from inside her entire life. It's a good one. I notice everybody, everybody apart from you, Joe, got no bikes behind you. Joe, come on, mate. You're letting the side down. I thought you'd have bikes behind you. I thought we said get bikes behind us. Mine's absolutely filthy, so I'd be really embarrassed. I haven't cleaned it in, I'm going to say, three weeks, four weeks. Well, mine's been hanging there for three months, so it's got cobwebs on it. <laughs> nice. You've got a visas there, I see. Is that all right? Yeah, I'm just trying to hide that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's you can't be doing it. You need, where's your factors? Well, yeah. <laughs> we won't talk about that. So, Sherry, for everyone, everyone at home that can't see where Sherry is, she's... Uh, She's got a couple of factor bikes behind her. She's got an Ostro. She's got a Vam. Very, I love the Vam. Really nice, lovely, light climbing bike. That isn't it? Yeah. Sherry, are you in your um, your purpose built shed in your garden? This, yeah, this is my uh, woman's cave. Which is very. It's. I wouldn't say it's like. Actually, a shed was like the completely wrong term. It looks. It looks pretty incredible from the angle I've got here. It looks like a. It's a Swiss cabin. Can you see? So that is lovely. What what was the reason for getting your woman's cave, as you called it? Was it 
completely your idea? Well, yeah. I mean, I was taking over, uh, I don't know, the lounge or the conservatory. So I got kicked out and purpose-built. Uh, I won the battle. I got purpose-built uh, woman's cave. And it, yeah, it's my little domain. So this is... Uh, this is like Battleship Galactica, it's where all the operations happen. I love it. So, Sherry, you just said you've been back from Portugal. Where have you, where have you been in the last week? Because you, because you were, you have been doing lots with the Vuelta, obviously, uh, and GCN and Eurosport. I've been down there with uh, with the Eurosport GCN crew. Um, that's sort of become my second, my other second family, I guess, and. And in between that, just uh, just working with Israel Startup Nation. So it's been a, it's been really really busy this year. But um, I think that's what I thrive on. Really, I just uh, yeah, I, I go insane if I'm at home longer than two weeks. Yeah, how how many days have you spent away from home this year? I've probably been away seventy eighty days. Wow, goodness me! How do you how do you? I know that you've got um, you're a big fan of of dogs and have a couple of sausage dogs. How do they how do they cope? when you're away or more to the point how does I mean your husband also he's quite an important person in your life I'm assuming <laughs> he's, he's dog daddy um, yep. so we, we've got we've got a rottweiler and a and a long-haired German shepherd and then in my wisdom I decided to get a miniature sausage fell in love with a miniature sausage breed and uh, ended up getting another one so we have Winnie Winnie Wee, as she's fondly known as, because she gets excited and does little t- <laughs> little tiddles. And then we've got uh, Bentley, Bentley Boo, who's just so chilled. He's, uh, but the, the pair of them keep us on the feet. And- How does a Rottweiler and a sausage dog get on? Do they get on? Absolutely dote on each other. They love each other. And like a big brother kind of, di- like a big sibling kind of deal. Yes. But Shay, thank you so much for joining us, because as you say... You have been insanely busy um, this last year, uh, and you're just about to go off to the Tour of Britain as well. So this is like, I don't know, you've got how many days at home before you're back on the road this time around, coming off the back of Portugal? Uh, I've been at home six days, just right. just over a week, and I head out tomorrow. Well, and then you're you're on the road for how long, and then is that the end of the season, or do you have anything to do with the Worlds at all? No, nothing to do with the World Championships, but uh, I guess, you know, if the team need me for additional races and, and so on, it'll be updated on my race programme. Uh, mm-hmm. But for now, big focus is on Tour Britain. Yeah. Uh, and then I have to say I'm looking forward to the team training camp in Israel. So uh, that's kind of... Uh, oh, wow. When's that? So it'll be in November at some point. But yeah, no, looking looking forward to, to going to see, you know, what uh, Israel's yeah. all about and... Because I guess you missed the you missed the first you wouldn't have been able to do that when you first joined the team because of COVID, obviously. The whole the whole team was sort of um, I guess we all missed that because of mm. COVID. So we had a, a training camp in Spain uh, mm-hmm. as everybody as, as everybody did. Do you know whereabouts you're uh, you're staying in Israel? Because we've done a few rides over there, and especially around by the Dead Sea, there's the lowest road in the world, which is quite a strange claim to cycling fame if you will, because we always want to go high. Yeah, no, no, no information at all. Uh, you know, just wait until uh, we get told when we're flying out. Oh, magic. Well, I mean, if nothing else, the food will be absolutely fantastic. I think that's probably the best cuisine going of the places I've travelled to. Oh, that's, so, that's, that's fantastic. So your, your season kicked off, uh, kicked off when this year? My first race was the opening week in Belgium. Um, nice. I went. I went along purely as a support sports director, just to get a feel for team operations. Uh, you know, it, it, it's obviously from from where I'd worked before with my own team and stepping up to the 
the infrastructure for, for one is, uh, you know, it's just, it's quite alarming, uh, but it's, you know, it's what I expected, but it was just to get my feet under the table. And I learned a lot that weekend. And then you're, so we're what, this is, we're going to be nine months, basically nine months into your first, first year in the Men's World Tour. How, if you gave it a mark out of 10 right now, how's it been? How has this first year sort of gone for you? Personally, I probably marked myself, I don't know, six out of 10. Um, but I, I, I guess if I look back at the races I've had, um, I've worked with the other sports directors or being a head sports director, I, I would say um, personally, I'm quite satisfied with how mm. it's gone. Because obviously it's worth noting for the listener. So, Jerry, you became the first, women's sports director in the men's world tour at the beginning of this year with Israel Startup Nation. For those with cycling, it's no surprise as you are probably one of the most experienced sports directors outside of the world tour before this year uh, with your work with Rally and, and Vitus, uh, Vitus Pro Cycling and stuff. So um, it seemed, it just, you know, that's a natural progression for, for most people in the industry, but obviously being the first woman made sort of a big note there. Um, but how how does it how has it started to sort of how is it compared this year? How has because it's worth again for the listener. Uh, you were the longest serving UCI Continental Sports Director, I believe, when you with your work at rallies. You knew the Continental scene, the the British scene, like the back of your hand. Um, I remember seeing you around at races all the time. Um, but then you step up to obviously World Tour, and it's a completely different level. How's that sort of jumped in? Has there been big surprises? Is there stuff that's absolutely like shocked you? You didn't know sort of was going to be the case. Well, how's it been? Um, I think I've you know for, for, to answer the first question at the row of questions there. <laughs> um, I guess I guess um, it's something that I've always worked towards. I won't say mm. I, I won't say it was a dream. Of course, mm. it's a dream being in my, in the position that I'm I, I'm I've now found myself in. But it's been ten years probably more of hard work and I've never lost focus on the fact that I wanted to work at Wiltor. I never knew five, 10 years ago how that would materialize. I, I, you just can't picture that, but I've never seen myself as a woman working as a woman sports director with men's teams. I've just worked, seen myself as a, a sports director, like all my colleagues. And I think without knowing it that's probably stood me in good stead really for for the position I'm in and you know when when things got crazy with the pandemic and of course the the domestic scene here is really um you know it's that there's some big changes clearly facing some troubled times and uh, and it just needed it really needed the bottom to fall out of it and I think now you can start seeing on another conversation this would be is is the the youth and the young riders coming through the domestic scene so it kind of almost needed that but it was time for me to it was time for me to move on and that's basically you know I made the decision probably this time this time last year you know hmm. to to reach out to world tour teams um because I got nothing to lose you know um and that's exactly what I did uh, and found myself you know working with Israel Startup Nation and and uh yeah, the rest is the rest is history. <laughs> um, so, in in the lead up though to um, Israel Startup Nation, um, so that was a job that uh, effectively began twenty twenty one, but obviously you were put in post in twenty twenty. 
what was the progress up until that point? We did touch upon um, the continental scene. You retired, you were first and foremost a racer yourself, and retired in 2006 or 2008. When was that? Uh, probably a bit before then. So, yeah, it was about 2005 where mm. we started building towards, I guess, a development junior team, which was a men's, a young men's, uh, young boys team, mm. I, I guess, effectively. Uh, and yeah, just, it just sort of fell into place. But Eddie, my partner, was involved with the domestic scene. He was junior, British junior road coach at the time. Um, so I'd always spin around uh, effectively what a sports director, or in those days, a team manager, work involved. Although the extreme differences now are just, it is chalk and cheese. You know, there's, there's no comparison to how... The, team managers did things in those days because we have all the technology with us now uh, to make sports directors jobs uh, probably more complicated and more involved you know so uh, I've always had that background and and it wasn't something that I envisaged doing when I finished my career I, I almost it just kind of evolved and and here I am. So how did you make the jump from the continental um, cutoff point which you know, by all accounts, incredibly sad time for you because you'd been in that scene, you'd been with a number of riders that had gone from team to team two, um, and Vetus was looking like a successful entity, and sponsorship collapsed, and that you know that's at the hands of COVID as much as anything else. Um, how personally did that affect you, and how did you keep motivated, and how did you get to the point where you're you're petitioning World Tour teams for a job? Because as you say, that's a difficult place to put your head in that situation where it feels like you know the walls are kind of closing in slightly i'd imagine yeah i i fought like hell um those people that know me and that have worked with me know i won't roll over easily and when you've had something uh for such a long time i mean 10 years eight years in the same building as you know for the service course um even that service course have got memories you know that you mm. cannot you, you cannot even imagine staff coming and going so it it's been very uh yeah it's been it was hard to make that decision even harder to tell the riders but I always kept the riders uh informed of every step and I genuinely still believed in July that I could take the team through and I fought to take the team through uh at maybe at elite level uh but then reality starts you know kicking in and we'd lost another small sponsor and then I thought, well, I'm going to have to go and find work because I can't take a living now, make a living from from running the team. So I had that scary position of actually applying for jobs, and uh, that was horrendous. That was the most scariest thing I've had to do, you know, writing mm. to normal normal people and asking for <laughs> positions, you know, outside of the industry that I've worked in all my life. And, uh, yeah, long story short is happiness. Uh, was one of those I knew I wouldn't be happy uh, having to work and and still doing the job because I would have had uh, the way I do things is to do them properly and I I would have still had to have done that and delivered a a well-presented team with good structure and I uh, it was right the time was running out and uh, it it was just what I do I I I love this industry Uh, I want to work at Will Tour so I just reached out to um you know, to wheel tour teams one evening and sod it. You know, I had a glass of wine and or two and wrote wrote a few emails and thought, well, 
you know, maybe they won't answer, maybe they will. Um, Chell Colstrom was one of the first to, to respond and discussions went from there along with some other teams. But um, I think Israel was a, was a good place for me to start mm. to give me the transition because obviously Will Tour, it, learning the flow of Will Tour is, is, is critical and that's where I'm, I'm sort of confident now that I've learned so much in the last six months that I'm, I, I believe now I'm able to hold, hold my own but with a very supportive sports directors group um, and head sports director, I think we can, uh, you know, we can keep progressing. When when Carlsham got in, in touch with you, you said, I remember reading, you had like quite an informal conversation just on the phone. So was there never like a, I've always thought, is there ever like a formal interview process where you've got to go in with like a presentation or is it literally just a couple of hours on the phone discussing ideas, just, discuss trying to sound you out as an individual and then went from there was that more the case no I think it was it was an informal phone call I think Chell had already done uh, done his homework and obviously spoken to our head sports director Rick Brugger Rick Brugger I'd worked mm. with as a as a Conti level uh, we fought we fought some good battles he was sports director for BMC and various mm. other teams so you know, I'd met him along the way in the convoy and, and mm. had some close battles um, with him. So he, he he knows I've been around a long time. And I think I've been fortunate enough now that I've, I've sort of covered owning, owning working for, for Rally, of course, as a sports director, owning that team um, from 2013. Uh, having the having the confidence then to, to create a company and, and forming a structure behind that and owning the team that all the work that goes behind there having a financial director and 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 everything else and and just making sure that you know the the whole structure for running the team is is solid you know mm. um, and i think people people look into the backgrounds of that and that's how it you know the rest is history <laughs> what was your uh, what was your first day on the job like because i'm assuming in even in normal times it's not a case of like hey here's a welcome uh, crew at the office and we'll go out for works drinks afterwards <laughs> so my my first kind of meeting everybody and it was maybe over 100 people at the first training camp i oh. am um, just wow uh but I, i'm not i'm not a, i won't sound i'm a fan of cycling i love working but i'm not a cycling fan you know mm. i i see this as a career uh, we're fortunate, very fortunate to, to be able to do, I am, you know, to do the job I love. Uh, and yeah, I just, I just fitted in. I think everybody accepted me for who I was and they, I still haven't come across face to face, you know, somebody that thinks what is a woman doing in this, in this team or a men's team. Um, uh, you know, I've been, I wouldn't say I've been welcomed with open arms, but I've been treated very much as an equal. And is that did that help walking into that that first scenario and just realizing that you were just like if they'd have signed any other DS that year, just like I suppose that everybody's different, but I'm not somebody who's phased by, uh, you know, the big lights. I I just take it in my stride. You know, if you with me, you, what you see on the tin is what you get. Mm. Um, I'm pretty laid back, and uh, I think the staff and the riders appreciate that. And you mentioned that. Walking into a room, you know, or a hotel rather, with you know, you've got a hundred plus people there from Swanier's mechanics through to the riders themselves and the PR people. How does that compare in terms of numbers to 
a team at continental level? For example, how many more riders do you have? How many more staff? And also, how many more water bottles do you get if you're a world tour rider versus Yanto Barker back in the day? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so, you know, for a, for a successful Conti team, I always operated with two mechanics, three or four Swaniers, uh, or masseurs, carers, uh, as they're known as. Um, I always uh, had two full-time employed uh, through the company. So we always had a full-time mechanic in the service course and a full-time Swanee. Um, and then the staff that I had involved around me um, really grew with me. They'd been with me between six, sometimes I think Pete, Pete Mooney, my, my old faithful mechanic, had been with me for 10 years, you know. And then we stepped up and we brought um, Alan Butler into the team. Uh, Alan had worked with World Tour teams for had been with uh, the likes of Armstrong, US Postal, Motorola, and all those kind of teams. So to have that kind of experience brought to Vitas Pro Cycling, as it was, uh, when Alan retired from World Tour, uh, it's just, you know, familiar people that know me and how I operate. And, and I think once the staff know how I operate, um, I don't really need to tell them how to do their job and they know mm. they know what buttons to press to make me happy, you know. Um and it's just a successful partnership that I've had with the crew, I call them, the family, um, for, for over 10 years. Coming into a wheel tour team and realising, I think the biggest change I noticed was having different people do different jobs. So I was uh, doing everything. I'd do rider contracts, rider interviews, staff interviews, uh, product development, uh Contracts with sponsorships, all the finances, um, designing the kit, doing the car wraps, taking the cars to be wrapped, sorting out car sponsorships, camper vans and everything. But wheel tour, everything's pretty much done by somebody else. So mm. my job effectively now is my responsibility is from when I step into the race on Sunday, for instance, for the Tour of Britain, stage one, um, and, and finishes when the race finishes. Although the preparation that goes into a race like the Tour of Britain, I've been probably working on that now for a good month, you know. So um, it's more detailed information and it allows me to give specific uh, information to the riders when I'm working on race strategy. So I can focus 100% on my job at Will Tour. And are you preferring that being able to be more sort of granular on what you're focusing on because as you said like if we'd have if this would have been the tour of britain three years ago two years ago you'd have had so much stuff to worry about before the day whereas now it's literally like sherry just focus on trying to win the race with michael woods or dan martin and on all that and you prefer having that focus i think it's been a nice uh, a nice change uh because the stress when you own a team is unbelievable. And then, of course, you know, you're also the sports director, so you also get to see the money that's being spent. So that stresses you out. And I'm not, not saying that I'm not aware of what we spend on at World Tour, but that's effectively, you know, the somebody else's problem. Um, but that said, I still have struggled to take my budget hat off even at this level. So, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm probably a pain in the backside for Chell because I'm still focusing on what we're spending. And, and <laughs> but anyway, you know, I, <laughs> I, like I say, I, 
I am what I am. Telling everyone to get tap water instead of uh, bottled water at dinner. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is, it is significantly different, um, you know, at, at this level. Another big change is that you've effectively almost like having look at, looked back at some of the rally teams, you'd have had like 10 riders, 12 riders for a season. You've effectively tripled that with Israel and you've got a score of 32. And especially with the COVID bubbles, I assume that I, I, I'm going to assume that there are certain riders that you've probably not even met yet. So it must be slightly different in terms of how you like man manage and manage the riders. Because when you've got 10 riders and like rally, you were always working up to trying to get that Tour of Britain qualification or the Tour de Yorkshire. You knew them inside out. Whereas now, I guess there's some riders that you you technically you are their, their DS, but you won't know as well, and you won't. You may just meet them for the first time on the Sunday before the race. So, of course, we met everybody for a ten day period in January. But like you say, I think my focus this year has been. Although I have done some one-day races, my focus has been around stage racing. Um, that's, that is where my strengths are. Although probably management will look at that and say, well, you you know, I, I did win uh, with Ben Hermans. We won um, uh, GP Apennino. So, yeah. um, but effectively, yeah, when you go to a race, um, you're, you're given your team, your selection. So I, I don't gen, we have a, we have a some say in, in, in the selection we do discuss that as a, as a group but generally the head sports director will will present a team and then I work with that team so the mm. only contact I have with that selection is probably the 10 days prior to that mm. I get you know get to talk to them what their aspirations are what they want to achieve what our you know what our objectives are for the race um but yeah like you say um I haven't worked with some riders uh, at all um mm. in fact I think this will be my first time I'm working with with Mike Woods, right. um, but everybody else I've I've actually worked with. So so thinking about that then, what look and casting your mind back, um, you know, going on 15 years ago or more, who's harder to manage? Someone that, like Chris Froome, who's won four Tour de France, Tours de France, um, and is effectively now riding in a supporting role um, because of injury and be, you know everything else, or a kind of young upstart like an Ed Clancy who wants to make it big? Um, I think you can break that question down into into two sections. And bearing in mind for over 15 years, for over 12 years, I worked with a British continental team, but I did in, have an injection of foreign riders, which I think, uh, yeah, I think it was Rafa Condor. They were also um, keen on bringing uh foreign riders, you know, Australians and so on into the team. But I focused on that. That was one of our instructions with with Team Rally, that we had to have uh, riders from Canada, Mexico, South Africa, whatever, you know. So um, working with European riders, for instance, Albert Torres, Sebastian Moore, those kind of guys, uh, brought, I guess, a way of me seeing how they worked and I could bring that into the team. So working with different nationalities and different personalities is something I've kind of learned over those 10, 15 years. Um, but no, I mean, um, I, yeah, it's, 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 I just treat everybody respectfully and mm. sit down and talk to those riders, get to know them. I think that's, that's key when you're working with, with different riders is spending time with them, getting to know them and, and, uh, 
knowing not, knowing what makes them tick, you know, uh, is how how you get the result from from any particular team. But just having a you know a good a good relationship before you start the race. Yeah, and also making the riders gel with each other. That's a key element of management. Um, I'm assuming, uh, you know, not being a manager, but so I'm told. How how do you go about doing that? Because obviously you've got the actual riding. Um, they'll be doing work in the gym. They'll be doing work with and everyone from the PR people through to um, potentially like psychologists and stuff. But I'm assuming there's good old-fashioned kind of uh, away day team building. Give, can you give us any examples of games that you played to kind of, you know, the icebreakers on the first day? We we didn't necessarily have any um, any of those games, but because just because of COVID, you know, and and, and so on. But um, I, you know, I, I think, like I said, I, I'm just what you see with me is what you get. And I think I think the way I deal with the staff and the way I deal with my riders, every sports director is different, you know, uh, and then you get the more older skilled type sports directors that have been at world tour for god 15 20 years are complete different kettle of fish to the way i operate but ultimately if we give them the same team i bet your bottom dollar the results will be pretty similar Mm. you know because that that is the objective of the day a good sports director is out there to go and get results for his team you know and working and gelling with the riders is 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 something i enjoy doing um I love working with the, you know, with the young riders and understanding the differences. And that's going on the question, working with Conti team riders in the UK. Uh, I, I've, I've seen quite a, a significant difference between how Wiltor riders are compared to Conti riders in terms of their attitude. And, uh, and of course, the Wiltor riders are paid salaries to, you know, high salaries. I, I paid good salaries, I believe, in, in the UK as best as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a, an expectation at at UK domestic scene that kind of does need to be pulled back, and I think that's where that uh, that's happening now. I think the the bottom is now at the bottom, and I think you'll start seeing a rebuild. Uh, and then I, be- I believe in five five years time or so, maybe sooner, you, you'll start seeing the resurgence of good managed professional Conti teams in the UK. You know, back to the way they should be but that's that's another topic completely <laughs> yeah so have you earmarked certain things coming up next season that you really as from a you know your professional career want to be at and want to achieve that beyond just you know every every day's a good day because as you say we're all lucky to be involved in cycling cycling is pretty damn fun at the end of the day uh, but yeah, beyond that, what are any specific goals for the coming year? For for me personally, of course, um, I just want to continue um, the progress that I'm making. I, I couldn't have dreamed how how this year has gone so far on a personal level. I I think I've been involved with a team now that's won. Uh, we won a stage in Torino Adriatica. Yeah. Um, we won uh, Apennino and finished third in Lugano GP Lugano. Um, with Ben Hermans and then I took the continental team away to Portugal and then we won a stage and finished a close second uh, within 24 hours so and then of course the teams I've been involved with um, we've been fairly successful so I want to continue in that vein I'm you know I I, I'm not stupid to think that you know it's going to be smooth sailing all the time you know Um, but um yeah, just a steady progression. And of course, you know, if I can get to a Grand Tour um, next year in my second year, that that would be 
another learning curve for me because I've never done a grand tour, but I don't want to be sent to a grand tour just because I'm the I'm the woman and I'm going to be the first woman. I want to be I want to be sent there because I can bring something to the team and and I believe you know another year down the line I I think I can be a valuable sports director to to any team really. Yeah, and how so? How when do you find out kind of where you're going? I mean, because a rider could get called up literally last minute to replace somebody that's injured or for whatever reason. Is it a similar kind of thing with team management? How far in advance do they plan? Do you know that you'll be going to a grand tour next year or not yet, for example? Generally, oh. yes. Yeah, we, so we'll we'll sit together as a sports director's uh, team uh, in in November. I guess we might do that in Israel this year. I'm not sure. But generally, that you know, we'll sit down and work the plan out. And you'll, you'll know roughly what your programme is. But things do change. I mean, Rwanda, Tour of Rwanda was one that was thrown, was passed on to me as an opportunity. Uh, I'd say 10 days before I left. So additional races can be added to your program. Portugal clearly was not on my program because that's part of the Conti team. Mm. Uh, but that's great to see. You know, I, I think teams will start using their development squads a lot more and integrating those into the wheel tour setups because, you know, let's face it, the way the wheel tour rides now is changing. It's younger. There's young mm. guys coming through who are ambitious and just want to win bike races. So we need to evolve with that. And I think you'll see Israel will, you know, will start working a lot more with uh, with the younger team, with the Conti team, development team, so to speak. Um, and and even I'd been away, you know, from Conti, from the Conti team for six, seven months, and then I was back at Conti level in Tour of Portugal, and I was like, wow, there's a lot to do again, you know. And it kind of just grounds you, and it just re- it just reminds you as a person, as a as a sports director, where you came from. And do you sort of look at a race like uh, Tour of Rwanda and kind of think, I mean, goodness, this is this is special. This is the sort of thing actually on strange and balance I'd almost rather be doing than a than a Portugal because I don't know. I'm imagining it's it must be markedly different to any other UCI sanctioned race just because of its proximity, the infrastructure, obviously immense cultural differences too with with Europe. So. How did that kind of um, stack up? What were your experiences there like? I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, the convoy was slightly different, but the com- a convoy is a convoy and a race <laughs> is a race at the end of the day. We do the job that we, we've been sent there to do. Um, it's just about, you know, adaptation and, and yeah, just like I say, if you're given an opportunity. And I think sometimes young riders need to see that. You know, I, I regret as a rider myself not paying attention to some of the countries I raced in and, Okay, mm. we didn't have mobile phones in those days, so we didn't have memories, you know. But there's some places I went to as a bike rider. I, I couldn't even tell you what part of Australia. I went to Australia. I couldn't tell you what part because I never no. paid any attention. But nowadays, I think, and I always try to say to the young riders, just look at look around at the opportunities you're given, you know, and look at look at, look at the life that cycling can give you, you know, and just grab every opportunity with both hands. That's that's a good point you make there because one of two of your riders actually, Alex Dalsit and Matthias Branley, when they rode the Giro last year when it was in winter, and they rode the Stelvio in the snow, I think they both sort of said that was one of the first times that they stood looked up from the stem and was like, "Wow, look at what we're riding up here. This is special." And I think that is something that whether that's a DS and a rider, they do neglect sometimes is some is to put their head above the parapet and be like oh wow we're in 
we're on the Stelvio, we're in Rwanda, we're, you know, racing on the Gold Coast, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, you get some young riders who are into that sort of stuff, you know, they really do value, especially now we've got Instagram and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. But, um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think even even now I'm, I'm getting older, but the places I've been to this year, I'd never go to, you know. Mm. Even places like Hungary, I'd never go to Hungary. Why would I go to Hungary? So, you know, and I've seen some beautiful towns, beautiful countries. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I say, we are privileged and we can we can only do this for, what, 10, 15-year periods. So just enjoy it. So, Sherry, I wanted to talk a bit about – so Tour of Britain this weekend, it's worth knowing. We've discussed it already. Uh, you're going to be there in DS Capacity with – Israel and it's going to be a very different and we've kind of said this already it's going to be a very different tour of Britain compared to what you've had your career up to date in those 10 years you were working with Rally and then Vitus the tour of Britain was your tour de France almost when you're a UK continental team that was the thing that everyone tried to qualify for wanted to get there and then in terms of a rider I guess that was where their that was their biggest shop window if they were a younger rider. And we've also said about how the domestic scene really took, sort of had its heart ripped out from it during the COVID period. We lost a lot of teams, a lot of stalwart teams like Rafa Condor, Rally, uh, well, Vitus as they were then, um, sort of disappeared from the scene. But we are going to have five domestic teams on the start line at the Tour of Britain. Do you think the scene is in a, the British scene that is, and as you won't know it so well, is in a better state than we sort of feared last year? Because I remember last year everyone was worried like we there could quite easily be no British teams with the way things were going and there was no racing, there was no tour series. But we have got teams on the start line this Sunday. Yeah, we have. Uh, and I think they all needed that start uh, in whatever capacity and what they needed you know for their particular sponsors to be on that start line and credit to to sweet spot for allowing that to happen uh, but i think a, a lot of change need changes need to be made to to make the uk more enticing again for younger riders to to actually go hey i want to be a part of team rally or mm. i really want to be a part because that used to be in in back in the day you know when you were coming out of junior ranks some of those youngsters really aspired to be on the raffers and the rallies and the mm. endurers and, and everything else, you know. Uh, but now that's not that's not so much the case, you know. And and I think we need to make it more, uh, you know, a, a dream for younger riders to step into a British team. But that's not going to change overnight. What, why would you say, what's the reason for riders? Is that because, as we also mentioned, younger riders are going straight from junior to world tour? Or is it? Because... I, th- I think it's the aspirations for for young riders. You know, when we when we started working towards, and this is no disrespect, I guess, to the, the Tour of Britain, but um, when we started having to fight for selection for Tour of Britain and ranking points and all this, I mean, for me personally, it it, it was quite soul destroying because we, as a sports director and a team owner, you build relationships with race organisers, mm. which is what I'd done for years, five, six, seven years before the selection process came through. And when you build a relationship like that, say for argument's sake, Tour of Normandy or, or something like that, the communication that you have and the friendship that you have and, and, the, and the build that you make to put a race programme together for a concert team like Team Rally, it isn't done overnight. And so when that selection process came through, 
I'd already honoured, and I'm talking from a personal point of view here, I'd already honoured and, and agreed with race organisers across Europe to go to those races. Now, all of a sudden, I'd having to rethink and go, well, I have to put my strongest team now into the domestic races. Mm. Uh, and that damaged my, I guess, my integrity and my, because I had to start pulling out of races. Uh, and that's not, a, you know, it's not a done thing. It's not, it's not the right way to go about things. And then, of course, sponsorship agreements and that were all mostly dedicated around Tour of Britain. Mm. But now we were having to fight. So what do we do? You know, so it was a, it was a very precarious position to be in in those days to what, what we're talking 2015 2016 2017 and it was almost a rethink and of course when you are trying to bring riders onto a team so like the Morgan Kniestys and the Sebastian Moras they want to race around Europe mm. and now all of a sudden we're going hey you're going to just be racing in the UK end off so it made it very very difficult to plan and and then you know sponsors who might have been involved in Europe so maybe a tire manufacturer had a base in in Germany or or whatever now is only getting visibility and 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 uh, sponsorship showcase in the UK and we've took that away from Europe and particularly with rally we were no longer then going to Mexico Canada and 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 then riders look at that and go, wow. Did it also make you change the way you signed riders? Because if there was more of an... Because I, what, one thing I noticed from the UK domestic scene a couple of years ago is that it seemed quite old in terms of the riders. There was an emphasis on the people like Steve Lampierre and the real season pros who you knew would get you results throughout the year and get you qualification rather than, say, taking a chance on an 18, 19-year-old who could be the next Chris Froome you know there is that and then you've you've got the other battles where you might have an older rider that's coming to the end of his career um and you sign him for what you believe you're going to get and then you don't get it mm. you know because they've got other plans or or you know when a rider has one foot in his retirement door it's very hard to to get 110% from from that particular rider and then exposing a very young rider in, straight into the depths of what was a very strong tour series. Now I think it was only three three rounds, but you couldn't unless he was very very uh, a very strong junior. You couldn't throw a young junior straight into the depths of the tour series. So the opportunities there for the younger riders. So it's like a vicious circle, really. Mm. You know, you you couldn't risk putting an 18, 19 year old into a premier calendar because you needed a maximum. You, you needed to score your points, you know. So those young riders were effectively not getting the opportunities unless they were super strong. Mm. And then, yeah, you, you just fight in a vicious circle. Yeah, so how, how do we kind of continue in that vein then? How do you break those vicious circles? What needs to be done at an organisational level to help teams bring through youth, to help teams be sustainable? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm part of uh, an under-23 group at federation as part of the road commission and we are trying to look as a group you know how we can make it more uh, inciting more challenging and and more you know given more opportunities as, as under 23s but until you get the sponsorship and again you've got the suspicious circle until you've got the sponsorship for the races until you've got the teams that can support the riders uh, and, and i don't mean just a bike and a jersey you know when you call yourself a conti team you should be able to 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 be able to remunerate those riders, you know, and, mm. and that's the battle that I was facing, you know, the last year and a half with 
with my team, it was getting more and more hard and more difficult, you know, to, to deliver what I'd call a, a proper continental team the way it should be run. Yeah. And obviously just so much of this just hinges on money. And so much of that money is, it's, you, you, can't, you can't win it. Cycling isn't like that. It's, it's the sponsorship. Um, and you, you have a unique position, I would think, in the world tour standings because you've been at a continental level where you have had to be, as you say, wear many hats and go and canvas for sponsorship. So I've always, I've always wondered, just how do you get sponsorship? Is it a bit like riders where everyone kind of throws their hat in the ring, almost like a kind of draft pick, and you just go after this known group of, of companies? Or are you literally knocking on doors cold calling people being like hey it is a bit like that and and it's uh, it, it takes a special personality something i had to learn to manage and yeah i i i think i did okay you know in dragging the team from the 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 top level tour rally team rally to you know to surviving with peter's pro cycling for for three years it's not easy to start i, I don't miss that at all and I've made, you know, I've made friends for life with the, the partners and the people I've been involved with. But it's constant. It's a constant fight. And it's not something that sometimes when you wake up wondering, you know, where, where your next payment's going to come from, you know, to be able to go to a race. That's, yeah, it's a constant battle. Yeah. And what, what would you think then is, has been like your personal best achievement in terms of that fish you landed? Well, um I, I guess the one that stands out is actually being offered the job uh, as a as a sports director at Conti level back in 2010, end of 2010, with Team Rally, hmm. because the the MD at the time, the the marketing director at the time, obviously believed in what I could deliver. Um, and I guess if it wasn't for that opportunity way back in 2010, I probably wouldn't be in the position I'm in now. So. Uh, I'd say I'd say landing the job with with Rally back in end of twenty ten. Mm-hmm. And how important to a team is a bike sponsor? Because I think people have this idea that someone comes along and they give you, I don't know, say around two hundred bikes for a, a team of thirty riders, possibly more for even bigger teams. Um, and every bike is kind of the same, or is it a case of? the riders kind of themselves are like, oh, yeah, I really hope that we get a bike from, for example, Factor this year. And then suddenly the, the team bike changes and everyone's just real nose out of joint. Oh, you know, what's this kind of thing? Um, how does that kind of play out? Because I know I'm a cyclist and I love kit and I know what I like and I know what I don't like and I feel better if I'm in and I'm on the stuff that I like. So how important are those choices to a team? Equipment matters, absolutely and morale and and everything goes along with that but i you know i always say that if you if you're willing to put pen to paper and you sign in the contract then surely you must already know what bikes you're coming to and if you if you're not happy with a particular bike then why is your agent talking with with the team you know so i think it's it, it, it works both ways and i've always believed that and with factor in particular that's a brand that's developed developing fast you know and they really are investing in working with the riders and listening to the riders and and we can see that now with factor they you know they've worked hard with the performance time trial squad to produce we believe one of the fastest time trial bikes which they'll be riding in the tour of britain um but it works both ways you have to have a partner that's willing to work um you know with with uh with the team and that's important and the riders need to be open to that as well. And 
and, and respect the sponsorship. Yeah, and Factor's obviously such a good brand of bike that you even have one of your own riders now investing in it, Chris Free. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah, you know, and I, I think that's that's great to see a rider um, putting something back into, you know, into the bike that's sponsoring his team and, and hopefully creating better bikes because of Chris's involvement. I, I remember speaking to Alex Dowse, actually, who's one of your riders in Israel, Saab, the racing rider, and he said that the, the best thing about riding, well, one of the really good things about riding for the team was that because of the way the team's run, and it's run by Sylvan Adams, who's like a, a benefactor, you know, he pumps a lot of his own money into the team, there was less emphasis on the sponsorship side of thing. So therefore, if he, as a TT specialist, wanted to try something new in terms of equipment or handlebar, there was a bit more openness to it where he's been in teams previously where it was, this is what you get. And even if it's going to make you slower, you have to race it. I, th- I think when, because I mean, listen, we, we as a wheel tour team, we've not been around that long. Um, what is this, our second year now, uh, mm. properly, um, where we take out the COVID year. So the team's evolved and developed probably quicker than, management and everybody can keep up with and I think when at the time and Alex won't mind me saying this at the time Alex came to the team when we were still in that development building the team structure and everything else but I would think now certainly now the contracts and I might be talking out of place here but the contracts are uh, are probably negotiated more with that sponsor in mind so more protective Mm. of the brands and and the riders do have to um, to fit that contract and you know Frankly, if they don't like it, they've got to lump it. You know, <laughs> what you what you are given is is what uh, what you have to use basically. But mm. the management are working, like I say, quite closely now with with Factor Bikes. You know, to make sure that the bikes that we are that we are riding are fit for purpose. And now you've got Chris involved. You know, that just ticks another box there, and and, and brings in more confidence for both both the team and, of course, for for Factor. Mm-hmm. Um. And I don't. I'm, I'm going to ask you quite a candid question, or ask you to be quite candid about your answer. How much of a team's sports nutrition do the team actually eat? Because I always think you see people at the beginning of stages, um, and they're fishing out little foil packets that they're not coming from, you know, SIS or from any as another sports nutrition. They're, they're coming from the team chefs. They're the nice little. Um, they're the, that's the nice food. How, how much are they really eating? <laughs> Basically, yeah, every team has a nutrition sponsor, ours is Morton. Yep. Um, but there are specific brands that riders maybe don't get on with, and we're very careful if, if, we, if we have to use that. But I think those, those silver wrappings that you see are basically when a rider just can't stomach a gel or a, another energy bar, and a lot of our riders in particular, we use brioche, you know, brioche ham, soft cheese, brioche and peanut butter. And, you know, so that's that's more specific. And, of course, we, we use rice cakes. Um, the the, the Smonies make rice cakes for the riders. So that's what you see that they'll be eating differently. And when when it's dinner time and they fish out what they've got in the musette bags, um, sometimes you see teams swapping, you know, different silver papers. You know, what flavor rice cake have you guys got today, you know? <laughs> um and that's what, all that is yeah what were you swapping as a rider when you were when you were racing i i, I think i just had to survive on gels and bars because we didn't have people making us rice cakes and 
brioche and that sort of thing, you know, that was back end of us many years ago, too <laughs> long ago to think about. Sherry, we, we've sort of had our allotted time here um, and we've, we're going to let you get back because you've got a very busy week ahead, as you said. Um, but we've got some quick fire questions that we want to throw over to you that are just, just nice and nice way to end the podcast, aren't they, James? They are indeed. So the first one, we kind of touched upon it actually, but where is the best place in the world that you've ridden a bike? Cape Town. So is that the Table Mountain, places like that? Uh, Chapman's Peak, you know, just spectacular views, really. So Yeah, nice. Uh, what's the World Tour race uh, you would want to work at most next year? Tour de France. Uh, is there a UK domestic race that you miss? Oi, oi, oi. That's a difficult one. I've got to be careful. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I miss probably those that are furthest away. Um in some dark township somewhere. Yeah, I was going to say, is there a town in the UK that you, you'll be happy to never visit again? Because oh, no, I can't, I can't possibly <laughs> say that on air, can I? I mean, I, I'm going to be honest, the, the Croydon uh, Tour Series round was never uh, through the uh, dual carriageways. Probably and... second that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and conversely, what's the best town in the UK uh, you visited? Probably somewhere in Scotland. Just for scenic views you're going to get to go to you get to go to edinburgh with the tour of britain which is uh i went there recently it's a very lovely city so that's that'd be exciting there's some beautiful scenery up there any anything past the lake district you know, you've, mm. you know yeah very beautiful scenery so yeah tea or coffee uh coffee the north or the midlands oh midlands easy <laughs> who's the who's your favorite rider in terms of who you've sort of watched in action and you've just been most impressed by? Oh, I'm going to have to say El Philippe. Uh, how about the rider you'd most like to sign? Oh, I don't know, Podjigar probably. Anyone would take him at the moment. Um, what time do you get up most morning? 7.30. And how do you keep fit um, now that you're not riding? Or do you still ride? Do you go out with the team at all? No, I don't go out with the team, no. Um, I, I enjoy running. Um, I try to run in every in every country or every town that I go to uh, just because I think it's pretty cool um, and then I'll have flurries of enthusiasm on Zwift but um, <laughs> I enjoy riding the gravel bike but it has to be you know it has to be decent weather I, I, I'm not into the dressing up and stepping into rain day, rainy days any longer <laughs> I don't I don't need to do that but I try and keep fit as, yeah. as best as possible and finally what's the perfect post-race meal Oh, for me, uh, it'll be a bottle of wine, red wine, with a nice cheese board and maybe a bit of uh, Italian ham or, or oh. Spanish sausage, something like that. Cheese and ham biscuits, that sort of thing. So there we go. Uh, Sherry Pridham, everyone. DS at Israel Startup Nation. Really good conversation, I thought, there, James. I don't know if you agree. I know you chat to her actually quite a bit. She is a columnist in Cyclist Magazine. She is a columnist. There is an N in there. Weird word, isn't it? The column. Uh, yeah, she does. She writes anyone that takes uh, the Cyclist Magazine magazine um, will notice that, yeah, Sherry has uh, kindly started writing for us, tells us uh, a little bit about what it's like to be from, you know, the view from inside the DS's car. Um, so, yeah, really insightful person, I think, because there's something about, uh, there's got to be something about somebody who is, in tandem being a kind of co-commentator pundit as well as working the job that just makes them that much more interesting you know it's not you know standardly you've got someone that's retired 
or they're from the outside of the sport, someone like us. And we don't know anything about anything, Joe. We have to ask the real people. I don't know anything about anything. Yeah. So, yeah, really uh, thank you very much again, Sherry, for coming on the show. Um, and, yeah, really lovely chat. What kind of stuck out to you there, Joseph? You know, what's what's your, what's your big takeaways from that discussion? What did you find out? Uh, I found out, actually, I what I was expecting to find out, and I did, was just how much work she had to do when she worked at continental level in the UK with team rally yes and having worked and done stuff with British continental teams previously at the tour of Britain which was a race we'd sort of discussed at length because obviously it's happening it's already happened actually probably by the time this goes out it's just having to have many hats for many different jobs and do Mm. and not just focusing on being a DS, but making sure that they've got their hotels booked in Worcester or making sure that they've got enough money in the pot so that they, everyone can get dinner at the end of the race. It's something that I've already, I've had an insight into before how it's so different for a world tour team compared to a continental team. And I'll, I'll tell you a little story, James. I went to the tour of Britain I think it was the first year I worked for the magazine, which was 2017 now. So I went to the Tour of Britain in 2017. There was a stage from Worcester to Cardiff. And I was being hosted by the Anpos chain reaction team. Do you remember them? Sean Sean Kelly's team. Sean Kelly's team, Irish continental team. A really great group of guys. So the idea was that I was going to be in not exactly a team car, but I was actually going to be in one of the organisers' car for the stage and sit behind the breakaway. Uh, and then at the end of the day, I was going to have go for dinner with them. Don't ask me why, but this was just the case. Sorted by one of the team sponsors. Um, and I think it was actually Chain Reaction. Uh, anyway, so we got on. I Cut a long story short, I didn't watch any of the race. So it so <laughs> happened that from Worcester to Cardiff that day was torrential rain. So we left the, we sort of went through kilometre zero, just on the outskirts of Worcester. And it was sheet rain. You couldn't see for more than like 30, 40 metres. And behind us, the race immediately split into like 10 groups. And on the team radio, uh, on the sort of director's radio, which ironically, do you know who was radioing that tour of Britain? Tito. Uh, Cherry Pridham. Well, She was sort of acting as sort of the sort of compare and controlling all of the cars in the convoy. She's radioed through to the car that I was in and said, there's no breakaway today or it's too disjointed. You're not going to be able to join the race. So instead of joining the race and sitting behind the brake for 200k, we just got on the motorway um, and drove to Cardiff, basically. I got dropped off in Cardiff. I had to wait around for like two and a half, three hours in the rain in a coffee shop till the race finished. <laughs> but that's beyond the point. What my point is, is that then we went to dinner with the Anpos Chain Reaction team. And it was the end of the Tour of Britain for them and Chain Reaction, or actually not Chain Reaction, Chain Reaction's PR firm was taking them all for dinner. Right. Now, the word had clearly got around that the team weren't paying for this dinner because I've never seen six group of men, a group of six men eat and order so much food <laughs> in my entire life. It was on it. Uh, I think one of the guys, six or seven bottles of Coke, over his dinner um which you could clearly tell they weren't allowed <laughs> normally and i don't think it was just because of they've got to keep in a trim shape it was i think because of it's expensive you know, money it's expensive in a restaurant, yeah exactly and i've never 
all of them without foul, obviously got the most expensive steak in this Italian restaurant in Cardiff city centre. None of them even considered anything else on the menu. Didn't even look at the menu. They were just like, yep, sirloin steak, please. Sirloin steak, please. Sirloin steak, please. It was the most expensive starters they could get as well. And the most expensive, all of them also got desserts, most expensive desserts, which I, for me, kind of gave me into an eye. I was like, does that mean that when they're on the, the team's budget, you know, it's a bit more like, well, actually, you can't have the steak today. You should probably have the um, menu du jour because that's a £17 set menu. Exactly. I'd say, and judging from what Sherry was telling us, I'd say that probably is the case. There's probably no, there's not probably no like we're all going to go to Macca's afterwards if you do really well. It's just feed yourself. Uh, who is it we we're talking to? I seem to remember someone. It, well, I think it was Sean Kelly. Suddenly going from a kind of rural life in Ireland, right? You know, or living in a rural setting, but doing his racing, to going to the continent and suddenly being like fed steak and just being like, whoa, this is amazing because we just can't afford this back where we come from. And the idea was that if you wanted to get strong, you just ate loads and loads of steak. But it's mad, like, think if you think about it, right, they would have been in the same... So that was Ampos chain reaction. They were a decent continental team. They got decent results, right? And they were racing that week, Tour of Britain, um, against Team Sky, right? Team Sky were there. Team Sky would have been there. They had the Death Star. They'd have had their own team chef and nutritionist who have been making all of those meals, and they've got all their mattress toppers and their own mattresses. And then you've got the Ampos team, who we stayed in, I want to say it was like the Marriott Cardiff, because the, t- the race organisers had put them in that. And some of the lads were like, this is the best hotel we've stayed in this year. And it was just like a conference hotel. that You'd go, like if you were working like for Pfizer and you were going to a bigger way day out in the Midlands, <laughs> that's the sort of hotel they'd put you in. And I'm like, this is the... Genuinely, that would have been the equivalent of like a, a sort of a Ishmaelian South team, uh, like Dartford Football Club, for example, which are in like the seventh tier of England, having to play Manchester United, but not just once. You've got a whole week of having to compete with them, and you. And it's not just the the levels of ability; it's the fact that. The Team Sky Riders finish and they have a lovely warm shower in their massive team bus and have food specifically prepared for them. And then when they go for dinner, they don't have to eat whatever's in the hotel. They just eat what's being provided to them. It's been perfectly balanced and and sort of planned out by nutritionists. And then these Ampos guys have just got to like deal with whatever they can get from their Holiday Inn in Worcester. And expected to just get up and do like 200k a day at 40k an hour again. It's it's actually what mad. Well, their their DSs are telling them to take as much stuff from the breakfast buffet as possible in the back of their pockets. Reminds me of um, have you seen the documentary Free Solo? Yes. Uh, so about Alex Honnold climbing uh, El Capitan, and they talk to I think it's Free Solo, or maybe it's the one about the dorm wall, and they talk to um some of these hippies that basically gravitated towards Yosemite, gravitating like the um, the hands of this kind of like ancient Swiss mountaineer who somehow wound up there, who was a bit of their kind of like spiritual guru. They just sat around and smoked weed and didn't have any money. And they, one of the guys was like, yeah, basically we worked out that if you got like five little blocks of butter from the cafe, which was sort of on the table for free, and you spread them onto a little, like a piece of bread, that was like a thousand calories. 
And so that's pretty much kind of, you had two of those a day and you could just like climb as much as you wanted. And they're just living off like, it's a bit like, uh, there's a brilliant Sopranos, you've ever seen that, where they get stuck in a snowdrift and they start eating ketchup packets. And like, I wonder how much of, how many ketchup packets and little, uh, little, uh, tiny, tiny blocks of butter it takes to compete in a seven day. What is it? Seven day or six day? Six stages. It's eight days. Is mate. it eight? Eight. Eight days yeah, a week. Goodness eight me. stages. Wow. So, you know, there we go. And back in the day, obviously, it was the milk race. So you probably got free milk. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, everyone would have been, everyone did the same thing. Even like the biggest teams were, were on the same level pegging. But now, it's never been, there's never been such a gulf between what, how the big teams are getting treated. So, how Ineos, for instance, would have been sort of treated last week at the Tour of Britain compared to how the guys from San Piran, which are like a British Conti team, would have had to sort of, to deal with things and I, I you know, hopefully you'd think that things are getting better but there is certainly I'm sure they are I'm sure they are but as you know as much as things get better at one end they get even better at the other end and you know the budgets again back to Sherry the budgets must just be insanely different like insanely different I can't imagine how much money a team like Israel has to play with compared to a team like Rally and not just Israel compared to Rally, but also Israel compared to other teams. Now, I know that Israel, in, in essence, we imagine they don't have as big a budget as something like Ineos because Ineos have just sat around winning so much more and you expect the bigger winners to have more money to play with. Israel, at the same time, is backed by a nation state. <laughs> and it really well, yeah, wants... Effectively, a, a billionaire. Who... Yeah, Exactly. It's bankrolled by a billionaire from said nation state. And also on some level there, I believe there are some kind of like government, uh, government links. The same with um, Katusha, uh, the same with Astana. Astana, yeah. I mean, it's a funny, it's a funny old, funny old world when you've got kind of your, yeah, you've got like a a national, a national team. Because obviously cycling used to just be national teams once upon a when. And then they went to trade teams. So you've kind of got a national, a national thing entity sponsoring a trade team as a trader i would i want to know if they get expenses flagged like we do so i want to know if like cherry pridham's trying to put through her expense like the team expenses from tour of rwanda and they're like hang on says here that you had six coffees on tuesday morning did you really need six coffees (laughs) or if it just gets signed through because i know from our personal experience james Yes, yeah, there are there are contracts that are involved in us going away that make us sort of pledge not to spend lots of money on coffee and also specifically drinks. Whereas one drink per meal, <laughs> we are not here. You're not here to. We're not propping up the bar anyway. But on 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 that note, it is actually coming up to lunchtime, and I'm getting rather hungry. So I'm going to go and eat food from my own budget. I expect you to eat food from your budget, unless perhaps we could go and meet up somewhere and call it a business meeting and expense it. I don't know. Just a thought. Could do that. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share and like all of the same old carry on. Thank you very much to Lindsay, our producer, for putting it together as per as well, obviously. Uh, and James, I'll speak to you again in the near future for another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. But until then, goodbye. Look forward to it, Joe. And toodaloo.